Our loving Heavenly Father, we, um, we delight in Your Word because You tell us the truth. Tell us the truth about who You are, who we are, what's happening, what's going to happen. And, um, and so, Father, as we look at this um, weighty piece of Scripture, we pray that by Your Spirit You would speak to our hearts, that You would convict us, that You would encourage us um, and maybe even challenge us. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. One of the great words in the English language is the word victory, isn't it? Victory. There are a few things that really can capture the real joy of, of triumph, of victory. You know, the fist-pumping, yeah, we did it. And of course, the more dangerous, the more challenging the opponent, the greater the victory. Now, I think if we're thinking about victory in our own personal contexts, really it's going to sit in the realms of a sporting win. It might sit in terms of maybe you win a tri trivia competition or you win at Monopoly or something like that. Some of us might have bigger victories than that. Victories over health challenges that are a little bit more yes than that. But a lot of our victories are on the sort of small scale. And so that's why for me, I can... I've only got to imagine what it must have been like to be someone on May the 8th, 1945, especially if you lived in Europe, VE Day, the day that Nazi Germany was finally defeated and victory in Europe was secured. Just think about it, seven years of bloodshed, seven years of bombings, Tens of millions of deaths. The countless tales that we've all heard of the cruelty and horror that happened during those years. Years, if you lived in continental Europe, of seeing your enemy occupy your homeland, pillage your resources, while showing off their seemingly impregnable strength. Now imagine finally getting the news, imagine seeing the headlines, victory. You know, it's no surprise that people filled the streets, they just swarmed outside, they, they danced with strangers in spontaneous celebration. It's over, at last it's over. I can only imagine the joy of those who lived through it, finally being able to say it's done. Victory, right? Well, today in our journey through Revelation, at last, we come to the end of the war. Sure, there is a new beginning that's going to follow, but today is the day we get to see the victory. So far, we've had this series of cycles of what must soon take place, right? We're told, remember, there's seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. Cycle after cycle, and you feel like your kid's in the back of the car on holidays going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? That's kind of like the journey through Revelation, isn't it? Just when we seem to be getting to the end of history, we rewind and we have another look at what must take place in these last days between Christ's ascension and His return. Well, today the journey ends. After today's passage, there are no more cycles. We come to the final battle, the final judgment. History is going to come to its definitive conclusion and all that's going to be left is a wonderful vision of eternity. And the great sign 
that the final victory is about to take place is that at last, heaven's champion turns up in person. The one who you might remember set all of the judgments in motion when he broke that first seal at the beginning of chapter 6. And now he arrives to finish the job. The final judgment takes place in three scenes and in these three scenes, Christ's great enemies are destroyed forever, one by one. And it begins with the beast. So the first scene begins with heaven standing open, if you're looking, it's in chapter 19, verse 11, we start there, and out of this gateway, in a sense, rides a single rider on a pure white horse. Now, if you've been here for a few weeks, you'll be familiar with some of these symbols by now. In Revelation, white, what's the colour of? Victory, the colour of purity. This rider is called Faithful and true. Now, up until now in the book of Revelation, Christ has often been pictured as the Lamb in the throne room of God. But now, faithful and true to His promises, He returns and He's returning now to make war. Have a look at His description from verse 12 and again, do this when you read Revelation, let your imagination go for a ride, right? Um, as you try to picture what John says he sees. His eyes are like blazing fire. Right? He's full of terrifying power. On his head are many crowns. No number is given. No need. The point is simple. He rules. He rules. And he has a name written on him. But unlike we who bear His name or those who bear the beast's name or the beast that bears the blasphemous names or Babylon that bears a name that defines her, no one knows the name on the rider except the rider himself. So the full nature, the true nature of this rider is beyond human capacity to discern or discover by our own means. Like, like the crowns, this is a picture of absolute sovereignty. Um, remember when we were looking at Exodus, when Moses sort of says, who, who should I say is send, sending me, right? Moses is told that the Lord's name is Yahweh. That's kind of telling him his name and not telling him his name at the same time. It means I am who I am, or some would say I will be who I will be. Well, you can't define me with a name. God just is. I will show you who I am by what I do. I am the full stop. I am the verb to be. There is something about this rider that's beyond knowing. And yet, we're also told in verse 11 that we do know who he is. He's called faithful and true. And we're told in verse 13, his name is the Word of God. And we're told in verse 16 that on him is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so, what do these two things do together? Well, on one hand, the full nature of this writer is beyond our abilities to discover, it's a name that only he knows, however, it is in his power to reveal himself by what he says and what he does, that he is faithful and true, that he is the Word of God and that he is the King of Kings and that he is the Lord of the Lords. And what do you notice about his robe? Verse 13, he wears a robe that's dipped in blood, what's that about? 
No, it's the garment of His kingship bears the visible marks of His sacrifice. That's the kind of king He is. He is the one, the one who is coming to judge the world is the same one that died to save it. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is returning and the armies of heaven are following Him. Also on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, right, you're doing some work here, in Revelation, who is pictured dressed in fine linen? Do you remember? It's the holy ones that are around the throne, whose robes have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Christ's people will follow their heavenly champion and in some sense participate in His final judgment. Do you know, the heart of all evil is rebellion. It's rebellion. Now, whether you're talking about Satan himself or your average person in the street, sin is rebelling against God. It's the refusal to let God rule us. It's the desire back in chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible and book of Genesis, it's about wanting to be like God and take His authority for yourself. It's rebellion against God as being our rightful King. And so, the picture that we're given here of the rider on the white horse is that of a King who, having redeemed countless multitudes, now rides out and He's going to crush for all, all remaining rebellion, all of it. With the army of the redeemed behind him, he now executes his judgment and he asserts his rule over the whole universe. And that's what we see in verse 15. See, he, he wields the sharp sword of his mouth. Okay, that's saying he's not going to come out and he's going to be slaughtering people with swords. No, it's the sword of his mouth. It's big figurative saying it's his true and right judgments, it's his verdicts that is the way he defeats the enemies of God. That's how he's going to strike down the rebellions, with the word of his mouth. Once more quoting Psalm 2, as has been quoted a number of times in the book of Revelation, John reminds us of the picture of Psalm, in Psalm 2 of the Lord's anointed that will crush all human arrogance and rebellion with an iron scepter. He's the one who treads the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Friends, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, this is not. And every aspect of this description leaves you in no doubt as to who's going to win. The rebels of the earth have taken their stand against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you've got this final face-off that is now going to happen. Now, in ancient times, one of the more macabre things that happened was flights of carrion birds tended to gather and follow armies. Kind of like, well, it's a pathetic example, but going to Manly and seeing all the pigeons and the seagulls because they know that's where the chips are. But it's not chips, all right? And my, my armies marched through the countryside, carrion birds would follow because they knew what it meant. They could read the signs. They anticipated the horrible feast that they would get after the battle. Well, in an ominous echo of the uncompromising nature of the judgment that's to come, an angel tells carrion birds to get ready, put their bibs on. These birds are going to feast on every rebel 
whether they're a king or a general, whether they're free or a slave, whether they're small or great. Now, when John looks across and he sees the army that the rider and his forces have come to face, it's not a small army. Look at verse 19 of chapter 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. You get this scene set for this ultimate battle that's going to decide the fate of all of eternity. You know, if you're in the cinemas, what you're picturing right now is the high-sweeping camera shot, okay, that's going over the massed forces and crosses the valley from one army to another. And you'd be settling in, getting ready for some sort of awesome battle scene with sword clashes and cavalry charges and, and screams and shouts but you don't see any such thing. There is no climactic battle. The opposing army is never even given the dignity of striking a blow against the Christ. And and what this does, it shows the foolish arrogance of any who would put themselves and stand up and wave their fist at the living God. It doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter how many there are, when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords says, time's up, no force can stop him. And so much for the army, so much for its terrifying commanders. It's like it's the ultimate anti-climax, look at verse 20, the beast is captured, the false prophet is captured and then the, the foolishness of all of those who bought into those lies and received their mark and lined up behind the beasts and the false prophet as if that was what's going to give me success in life are now exposed because the beast and the prophet are thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. You know, imagine one of those big sort of lakes, lava lakes in the middle of of a volcano, that's the kind of picture you're getting. It's 800 degrees Celsius, anything that goes in there is going, it's melting. In other words, rebellious humanity has backed the wrong trinity. And the rest, look at this, all those who lined up behind them are slain by the sword-like word of the rider and are left to the birds. God doesn't need muscle to win. How did He create this universe? With His Word. The same Word that willed into existence the universe is more than sufficient to overcome any and all of His enemies. When God said, let there be, there was. And when God says, let it end, it will end. Just like in the climax of an epic action movie where one by one the bad guys fall in a hail of bullets, right? Um, Babylon, first of all, is no more. So the social, economic, religious forces that set themselves up against God and oppress His people, gone, forever. The beast is no more. Kingdoms and powers, mighty forces that set themselves up against God and His people, gone, forever. The false prophet is no more. All those things that deceive 
and coerce people into joining with the beast. Gone. Forever. One by one, the enemies of God and His people are falling, never to get up again. And just like that, because God says, no, you're gone. And so we come to scene two, the final demise of the dragon, of Satan himself. Now, before we have a look at this scene, we need to recognise that there is great disagreement amongst Christians about how we understand these verses. All the millennialism stuff that you might have heard of, and have go, I've got no idea what it's talking about, but, but I've heard of it, that's this stuff, right? That, that's to do with these verses, these that comes here. And the dispute has to do, really, with when these events will take place. Is Revelation, in other words, revealing to us a series of events that are all going to take place in succession sometime in the future, one after another, all the way up to the very end? So, you can do a series of books on it or a series of movies because it's going to be like that, right? Or, is Revelation revealing to us a series of pictures that are all looking at the same event, just from different perspectives? I think... I would say, and I think we've seen so far in our series, that the only way to make sense of the book of Revelation is the second option. These are replays of the same event. Each replay focusing on the final judgment upon the various enemies of God and His people and looking at it from a different angle. And I think the past few chapters actually makes this obvious. So, I want you to have a look on the screen. I've got a a slide there. I appreciate font size is not huge, but it'll, it could, it gives you the picture, right? You've got the seven bowls of judgment, where there's forces gathered to oppose, they're all ready to wage war against God and then they lose at the end, right? And then you get in chapter 17 with the destruction of Babylon, you get the same thing, all right? You get forces gathered, basically to oppose, and then you get it all ending, the, the kings gather, the people are defeated, And then you get the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then you get the third one, the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. Kings of the earth and the people gather against God, get defeated, um, the rest are slain. And then in chapter 20, with the destruction of the dragon, dragon, you get the same thing. Okay, so each of them is quite clearly a picture of the end. And so to see any of these as following the other in historical time makes no sense because everyone gets killed four times, right? It, it, it doesn't work. Now, at the conclusion of each of these visions, it's all about gathering against God's people, God and His people, and that that is defeated. <clears throat> so, each of these visions, we zoom back and we have a look at the same period of time from another perspective. And each of those perspectives relates to the subject of the vision, whether it's Babylon in one vision or the beast in another, or as the cases we're looking at now, the dragon, right? So now let's look at scene two. Now when we last saw the dragon, it was back in chapters 12 and 13. Satan had tried to destroy the Christ during his earthly ministry, but had failed. And following Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven, Satan's power to accuse, we're told in those chapters, was broken and he was thrown to the earth um, and his, his power was restricted. So there he is pictured trying to destroy the young church and yet he fails and he's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And we left him on the shore of the sea. And so, you kind of get this idea that as if it's that he's in the background 
striving to make war on the rest of the church, but only as kind of a, a malevolent spirit that's sitting behind the beast, sitting behind the false prophet and all of those. And, and, and so we leave him there. Well, now we get a similar picture as scene two takes the story of the dragon to its conclusion. First, we see that Satan is limited. Look at verses one to three of chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until a thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, so the chains, I take it you get this, are figurative. And Satan being a dragon is figurative. It's not literally a scaly dragon. All right? The abyss with its lock and its seal are figurative. And so it is with the thousand years. Just as it's been throughout the entire book of Revelation, time here is being understood or represented to us symbolically. The thousand years is a round figure, meaning a substantially long period of time. A time during which Satan's power to deceive the nations is restricted. I'll talk about what that means in a second. But at the end of that time, we get the sense that he's going to be released, but it's only for a short moment. A moment that's actually going to mean his destruction. So, for clarity, this millennium is the substantial amount of time that exists following Jesus Christ's ascension that you can read about at the end of the Gospel of Luke and at the beginning of the book of Acts and before Satan's final defeat. That's what this thousand is. It's all of this time in between. It's a time when Satan, we're described as being bound but not defeated, alive but chained up, as it were. So when Jesus Christ died and rose again, Satan's ultimate defeat was only a matter of time. That's the story that chapter 12 told us. Satan might rage but he's not able to stop people throughout the world hearing the gospel and joining God's saved people. In other words, this period is the time of mission when the gospel gets to go out to the nations in the world and Satan's not able to, to blind the world to the truth of it. This present period of time, now, when the gospel of the risen Jesus Christ goes to all of the nations, this is the thousand years that he's talking about. But for a very brief time, we're told, at the very end, Satan will be let loose to renew his rage. But John holds us in tension for a little while longer. Before we find out what happens next, John's shown another picture. But this is the picture of the faithful during the same period of time. Look at verse 4 to 6 of Revelation. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. And they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, so what's this telling us? During these same last days, in between Christ's ascension and his return, all right, those who suffer because of testifying to Jesus, those who do not give in to the world and its false worship, will go to be with Christ when they die. We've seen this same group of people a number of times already in the book of Revelation. They're the ones that are secure under the altar, back in Revelation chapter 6. They're the ones that are being gathered around His throne in that wonderful vision in chapter 7. And the point is, those who die faithful to Christ during these last days, before He returns, their job's done. Their job's done. What a beautiful reality. And you know some of their faces. You know them personally. Any of those that you know and love who've died still confessing Jesus Christ as their Lord to their final day are safe. And they are more than well. It's the reason that there can actually be such joy at the funerals of faithful Christians. Because for all of the pain of their passing, they're now with their Saviour. That's the message. They're blessed. They're holy. They have no need to fear the second death, the wrath of God. I mean, what a message for those seven churches that are being uh, oppressed so badly by the society around them to know, you know, when your witness is up, you're going to be with Jesus. You'll reign with your risen Saviour. See, they reign with... It's the opposite of actually having to fear the second death. They're reigning with Christ. They're enjoying His presence. There is no such place as purgatory, where you have your impurities burned off you by suffering, by fires of judgment. No, all of those who die in Christ are holy now. Their robes have been washed clean already by the blood of the Lamb. And nor are their souls asleep, as some would say. They are more alive and more awake than they've ever been. And it's not just Revelation that gives us this picture. Um, I'm not going to read them out, but have a look at some of these verses from elsewhere in the Scriptures. Take a little photo of that if that's something that would help you. But in time and again, in the New Testament, when we die, we go to be with Jesus. We're safe with Him. We don't just stop existing for whatever period of time between when we die and Jesus returns. We go to be with Him. We are conscious and present with Him when we die. That is the Christian hope. Brothers and sisters, if we die before Jesus returns, we go to be with Him. We will rest from our labours, we will enjoy the presence of Christ Himself as we await the beginning of eternity when with perfect body and perfect soul we enjoy heaven forever in the new creation. But that's next week's talk. All right, let's keep going because there is still a victory to be won. At the end of the thousand years, once again, we see God's enemies gathered for battle. See, this is a story you just hear again and again and again, it's a replay. Satan's released but it's only for a moment and it will lead to his destruction. Look at verses 7 to 10. When the thousand years are over... Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, 
to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city He loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is the reason we had that longer reading from Ezekiel earlier. This is directly from that. John is reminding of us of that passage explicitly, Gog and Magog. There, in chapter 38 of Ezekiel, God uses the nation's own wrath and evil to lure them in to surrounding His people. And then, without His people having to lift a finger, God Himself, by His creation, destroys them all, just like that. In the same way, here in Revelation, Satan is released and in his rage, he gathers all of these armies and at last now I can go and destroy God's people and he's so blind in his rage that he doesn't realise that God's doing this. He's bringing them in, luring him like with a hook through his nose, saying, you're coming here. God's actually using him to gather all of these enemies conveniently together in the one place where they will be judged and destroyed. Now, we've seen these massed forces a number of times now, haven't we? This is the anti-church. Well, the church is the gathering of God's people, this is the anti-church. The gathering, not of the multitudes around the throne of Christ in worship, but of those who've united against Him and His people. Well, just like before, their uncountable numbers doesn't mean a thing. It's of no benefit to them. There is no battle. God has brought them before His beloved people. Notice this, He's brought them before His beloved people so that He might defeat them in their presence, that they might see His victory and participate in His victory, that they could witness His vindication, having endured the entire of human history with people waving their fist at Him, we will see His victory. And now at last the devil too is thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet. Friends, if you want to think about victory, there's victory. I mean, that's victory with the biggest of all these. Because at last the enemy from humanity's very first days, the enemy who has waged war against God and His people and has deceived billions and led them to their deaths, is no more. Never again to destroy, never again to deceive, forever receiving the punishment that He well and truly has earned. Speed that day, brothers and sisters, bring it on. Well, with the beast and Satan gone, with the spiritual forces of evil in this world destroyed, there's one final enemy to be defeated and that is death. Have a look at verses 11 to 15, this was that smaller section that was read to us earlier. And I want to say there's a tone of, if you look over those verses, there's a tone of finality to it, because the the picture is a very simple one. You've got this great white throne, you know what that means now? Great white throne, God's victory in His judgment, great white throne on which was seated the righteous judge of all the earth. And there's no beasts here, 
There's no dragons. Notice that even the earth and the sky flee from His presence. All right, what that's kind of signalling for us is that the former fallen creation that itself was broken has got no place. Its days are no more too. It's done. And there is the living God seated on His judgment seat. And there are the books recording everything that every person has done, ever. The heavenly eyewitness testimony on the lives of men and women. And there is another book, that's the book of life, just one of these. But then there are the dead, from all places and all times, every soul lined up before Him for judgment. And the process is really simple, each is judged according to what he or she had done. Here's my question for you though, where are the living? Where are the living? Think of what we've seen so far in Revelation. Notice where the dead come from, the sea, the place of chaos and evil, death and Hades, the place where those who die outside of Christ go to await judgment. And everyone is dead because everyone's lined themselves up with the beast and the dragon and Babylon in all of those repeated battle scenes. And each of those scenes ends with all of those who are opposed to Christ being slain. So, where are the living? See, those who die faithful to Christ aren't pictured as dead in the book of Revelation, are they? Oh yeah, they die, but then they're always described as being somewhere alive afterwards. I mean, didn't we just read about them? Reigning with Him, beneficiaries of the first resurrection, they're pictured throughout Revelation as standing before the throne with Him. They are alive, they cry out, how long? They're resting from their labours, they're clothed in the white of victory, they're rejoicing in His presence. Now, it could be that we're meant to assume here that God has already got His people with Him before His throne as He calls up the dead from elsewhere. But I suspect that actually believers aren't even in this picture in chapter 20 at all. Not there. But none of the dead standing before Him have got their names written in the Lamb's book of life. The ones here are the dead and that's why they're there. All there is, is the record of their deeds, the record of their rebellion against the one before whose throne they now stand. They're not in this book, so they're there. In this final of final judgments, those do not, who do not have Jesus Christ to stand for them, those whose names are not written in His, His book of life, well, they've got no beast standing there that they can point at and say, well, it was the beast's fault. And there is no Satan standing there to whom they can point and say, well, it was Satan's fault, the devil made me do it. No, it's just them and God and the undeniable record of their own rebellion against Him, a lifetime's worth. 
And it's for that reason that they too will and must face their judgment, their punishment. No longer will they be permitted to deny their Creator and to ignore His Christ. They just live for themselves, as if they were gods. The time for rebellion is over, and it's now the time to face the deadly consequences of doing it. They rejected their lamb, and so they're now defenceless before the lion. So let me speak plainly, because it would be irresponsible for me not to, especially in this passage. That if you have not yet turned to Jesus for forgiveness, if you haven't yet put your faith in Him as your Lord, you need to understand, sitting here right now, that your time is not unlimited. You don't have forever to change. You Please, you must hear that. It is true. Do you know, I've been to four funerals in the last fortnight and three of them were for people who died suddenly and without warning. Praise God that all three of those knew and loved Jesus. But what if you were to die tonight? Everyone here should really think seriously about that question. What if you were to die tonight? Whatever age you are, what if today was your last day? If you come before your maker and your judge, as you will, and do it without Jesus, there's going to be no yeah buts, no justifications, no excuses, there's no blame that you can pass and there'll be no more chances and there'll be no more time, none. Like literally, that's it, you're done. Just the finality of God's righteous verdict on the life that you know you've lived in rebellion against Him. You can't say that wasn't fair. You can't say you didn't do it. And that will be followed by the hell of an eternity separated from all of God's goodness that you've taken for granted all this life. When you've said you've taken Him, taken it from Him and not thanked Him. You haven't given Him the honour even though you've benefited from all that He's done. Now, I want to say to you, why on earth would you choose such a terrible option when the glorious free gift of Jesus is right there for you to take now? It's being offered to you. I mean, in one sense, you could say Jesus is standing there with the book of life open and His pen there and going, please? Can I write your name down? Why, why keep waving your fist when you can just humble yourself and say thank you and enjoy what comes next? You know, there's a lot of a phrase that often gets used these days, or being on the right side of history. You heard that a bit? There is only one right side of history to be on, and that's with Jesus. Come to Him, know His love and share His victory. You see, with sin's final fall comes the fall of all of our greatest enemy. Death itself is going to be no more and the place of the dead will be no more. Only the place of the living will remain. So then where are the living? Well, we get to look at them next week. That's chapter 21 verse 1. 
Friends, Revelation 21 and 22, the glorious picture of heaven that we'll come to next time, that's the peace. But make no mistake, Revelation 19 and 20 is the victory. This is the victory, this, this passage. That's the peace next time. This is where Christ himself is vindicated finally. This is where the job gets finished. This is where the war ends. Friends, where to live in hope. And not just the hope for joys in heaven itself, but for the joy of at last being able to say no more of that. That's what's going to be so good, right? Think about temptation, evil, maliciousness, ignorance, oppression, persecution. No more. I mean, I mean, never, ever again. Mental illness, physical illness, the ravages of ageing, fatigue, hunger, thirst, grief, all of these things that come in my living in this broken, fallen world, no more and never, ever to be experienced ever again. And war and murder and the presence of obscene wealth side by side with people starving and rape and the abuse of children and broken families and corruption and injustice and greed and pornography and unfaithfulness and deception and lies and arrogance and lack of compassion and hostility and just rudeness and self-absorption and the list can go on and on, no more, never, ever, ever again to, to shadow anything, it's all going to be gone. Now that's victory and that's liberation, isn't it? And that's something that you celebrate forever and ever. And that's what Jesus Christ is going to bring about, that rider on the white horse. God himself has been working towards this moment for the whole of human history, saving people from sin and death and bringing them under his loving, perfect rule forever. And that is our hope. And it only gets better Because not only do we get to celebrate the victory, but we can celebrate the eternal peace that follows it. Friends, if you love Jesus, I think this is one of the things I want to say, don't dread Judgment Day. It is not a dark day. It's like someone in 1942 wishing the war would keep going. War is horrible, but for war to end, the enemy needs to be defeated. Bring on that day. And until then, you need to remember this, evil has no future. Evil has no future. So you need to stand firm in Jesus Christ all your days because he is the only position of safety. And you need to preach the the gospel to others so they can escape this judgment and actually know God's grace. And you know what? You can cheer on your champion knowing that the rider on the white horse is faithful and true And he's coming and he will set all things right. Praise God for that. Amen.